0: 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Vampire the Requiem. Hey folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliations by Flyos Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters. And they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at werewolftheapocalypse-retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it will appear on Kickstarter, which seems to be early 2022. The game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us, the fans, including scenarios, investigations, beautiful miniatures, and more. With that, thanks for your time. Hey everyone, and welcome back to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade Presents Requiem um we are here today myself dj along with brennan hey everyone and we will be discussing a book that is very near and dear to our hearts known as the blood yeah you could say it pumps through our hearts (laughs) that being the case um one of the things about the blood and i guess before we even get into the intro uh not only the story but like in terms of the book what was your first thoughts when this book first came out brennan
1: uh, well, when this first, when this book first came out, um, I didn't think about it cause I didn't play this game until like 2015. Uh, it's mm-hmm. still the first one I played, but, uh, I'll, I'll stop being a smart ass and actually answer your question. Uh, when I first saw what this book was, I was like, first off, it's called the blood. I was like, what is the blood about? Is it a book all about the day? I wasn't fully wrong, but then I found out it was basically the, the equivalent of the player's guide and I was like, I don't need this. Right. <laughs> that was my first thought. And it wasn't until um someone pointed out some things like some some more like intricate details about vampires that I'm sure we're going to talk about as we go on that I was like, "Where where did you get this? It's not in the book." It's was like, "Yeah, it's in the book. It's in the blood." And I was like, "Damn it, I should have read that."
0: And it's funny you should mention that because that's almost the exact same way I felt when I first got the book. And I remember when it first print, like I was just buying Requiem books left and right and it, I was like, "All right, well, once again, most of us who, who pick up the game are just looking for mechanics and we're trying to scroll through and or for like nice juicy mm-hmm. pieces of fluff. And like it kind of took me aback because when I first started taking a look at it, I was like, all right, well, what am I going to do with this? And originally coming in from Masquerade, I was like, I should know all this stuff already. Why do I need to? And t- I put it to the shelf for a while before I picked it back up and I saw like the wisdom behind it. Even taking a look at this again and rereading it. Um, I love you know, how they kind of bring this together. And I think one of the things that we've been discussing so far through every uh, book recently has been, like, the developer's forward, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it's by Will Heinmark. And what was very important, this is a paragraph in here that I'll read uh, word for word because I, I just feel like it's very important to take a look at, where he goes, it's been almost four years since Vampire the Requiem uh, debuted under red lights behind cage Dancers at the White Wolf Party in Indianapolis in 2003. In that time, we've explored into the cultures and histories of the Covenants out into the weird possibilities of the Seven and Balau's brood and up to the limitless possibilities of Vampire Chronicles and down into the buried myths and legends of the Damned. But have we moved too far from the raw dramatic passion that is Vampire's bloody beating heart? And I think that line pretty much sums up the reason why... I was originally drawn into Requiem when I finally did have the opportunity to sit and resonate with it. And I think Bob has mentioned it before. Speaking of, Bob is not with us this day, but I know he'll be listening and he'll be very proud of us when we go over it. So we'll be bringing his Mm. name up every now and then. But it, it's true because I think when we were originally taking a look at it, we we fell into the romantic sense of like what it is to be a vampire in Requiem versus what it is to be a vampire in Masquerade. And while they gave us a lot of crunch and we were speaking about this, I think, last time, uh, especially when I was thinking about Belial's Brood, I was like, you know, I was almost happy when I didn't have to worry too much about Belial's Brood having so much detail behind them. And even though I appreciated the book, there's almost like that. That cool piece where you could just let your imagination run. And I felt the exact same way when I was originally thinking about Requiem once again, in terms of I feel that this really focuses on vampire, right? In terms of like that loneliness, what's happening, just the Requiem itself. And I felt that as every book came out, it was adding just another layer. But you're right. You know, it, did we move away from what made Requiem, Requiem? And I think for me, uh, this book and this being addressed specifically during the forward uh, was very impactful for me. Um, did you capture any of that, like, you know, when you first gave it a read or it was like the forward just going like, oh, skip it over. And then you jumped into something else.
1: No. Nah, so like, um, I mean, uh, again, I kind of had a, a different experience for it. Right. Like I started with the second edition of, of all of Chronicles. Right. Like I got in it as soon as that that stuff dropped. Right. God Machine Chronicles being like one of the first things I read. And yeah. um, so like going back to it, like I couldn't I couldn't like sync up. With that, really, like, have we gotten away with what I thought it was? Is like, I, I don't think so, because everything I'm reading here is like great, and it, it's still like even this being a uh, what uh, six years before second edition came out, it's it's still a hundred percent viable, except for like a paragraph or two in the character creation section, right? It's still right. it's still uh, in pace. So all those and it requiem had like. Uh, developer lineup changes since then like will Heinmarsh, right uh at some point uh it's rose bailey that comes right. in and uh they they still keep that like lockstep i ne- i don't feel a, a tone or mood difference between the real editions other than as they go on second edition like it it they just have a, a wider horizon because they've had so much stuff to build on
0: right and another thing that kind of draws into it is like the first paragraph or like the first topic marker there it definitely says that it's for the players mm-hmm. um and i i truly feel that it's something that people should resonate on and, and take a look at because it really is for the players many things have already been created for sts or like if you're taking a look at a different system where game type there's always like a dungeon masters x y and z or storyteller game master what have you but this being specifically for the players um and them just tackling it directly is, is something i thought was really great um, and we'll get into that. I mean, like I, we might as well just begin in now, and I think mm-hmm. we should take a look at that in terms of uh, the way the chapters are broken up. The, the There's about three chapters in here. One of them is definitely the kindred character uh, for chapter one. Chapter two is the properties of the blood, um, and chapter three is being vampire psychology. Um, regarding chapter one, though, in kindred characters, um, and one thing that we should also preface is that a lot of this, we're we probably going to touch high level on things that we found very interesting in terms of the book. Of course, we want you to be able to read it and enjoy it the same way we do. Um, going over the entire book, we could, once again, as always, go over many, many things and take forever doing so. Um, but we'll touch upon the things that we thought were very impactful and hopefully wet your whistle to want to take a look at this book or make a decision about it. Um, so with Chapter 1, Kindred Characters, we're talking about the character creation process of vampires or your character in vampire the requiem uh Brendan, if you start us off like what are your thoughts so far in terms of how this approach is different than what we've probably perhaps seen in masquerade
1: so keeping with that that high level um the the biggest thing that stood out to me when i when i especially when i first read it um was the the at first, I was like, I don't, I don't get how this section is so long. Like, I would flip through it, right, and I'd see paragraphs like, "This is attributes, three page letter. This is skills. Like, how are you talking about this so, so much? Right? You just throw dots and you're done. You go in, just make it make sense and go. But this was the first time that it was like eye opening to me. It's like, hey, hey, dummy, you're taking like strength three, but uh, how, what, what character did you make? They're like some scrawny guy. They were they an athlete in college? Well, no. Then how are they above average in strength? I was like, I don't. I, I don't know. I never really thought about it that much in depth. And the, the point of it was that at every step, every time they're going over this, they hammer home like all you when you're playing a game, you shouldn't be like you shouldn't use your sheet as a crutch. I believe that per, 100% when you're role playing, it should be based off like like the the concept you came up with. Right. But if you're going to make your sheet be a a, a, a faithful reflection of that, well, like uh, what you got to, um, you got to start putting it, paying attention to, to what you're putting on it, right? And that I, I say that because that's me talking to like my old like first or second character, <laughs> Brentron, back in the day. Like, hey, this means something, right? Second time I think I said that. And so what? What it? It's just. Um, let's see. Uh yeah it just started making me think more and in every section that's just what it talks about like what is the meaning of of these this two dots in brawl right It means you're a professional level boxer is what that means a, a two in everything right that's that's something i I tell people now I know Bob says the same thing whenever we're talking to players and that's this is where I picked it up from uh so this this book actually in this this one chapter even though I don't think I have a lot to say about it that that's had the biggest impact out of well in this game and in like any other I'm playing at this point.
0: And I think another thing to mention with that is uh, from both of ourselves being STs, we've kind of taken a look to see where players make their initial purchases, even playing masquerade or Requiem, what have you. And it's one of the things that kind of gets lost in the sauce because you're right. The first thing that ends up happening is it's kind of like I'm at a car dealership. All right, just, just give me the keys. Let me go ahead and put it in the vehicle. Let me go ahead and mm-hmm. room. Do I have to pay this? I'm gone. Um, And comparing it to Masquerade, one of the things in terms of how it's creating is that it, it, in Masquerade, I remember like the pages, like just two spreads, two pages worth of spread that tell you how did you get embraced, how did you meet your sire, what do you do during your day, how are you probably feeding, etc. And they're good markers to kind of give you an idea of how to ground your character in the terms that he should, he or she would, um, or they in this particular case. but when you take a look at it from how it's being presented here in this chapter, and you're right, every point has a meaning, it kind of walks you through the process of living it out. You know, and originally where it was a storyteller who would assist the player, and it still should be the storyteller to a degree to kind of assist the player, help navigate uh, through character creation. This book, especially as a person who had come in like solo, and I was doing this, you know, at the, the beginning of online chats, and not having had a play group, I'm like, well, how do I get my data from this? How do I immerse myself into a character right because Uh i didn't have a storyteller readily available i'd have to reach out to like one of the sts on the old white wolf chats new bremen etc to help me out uh to create these characters but before then it was like how am i going to immerse myself or think in in the fashion that i should and for me liking the role play as an r-o-l-e over the role play -L 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 L. I wanted to immerse myself more into it. And I think as it walked through everything, it gives you the reasons as to why. Um, not only does it give you points, as Brentron was mentioning, in terms of how they have meaning uh, along with templates of, like, if you're filling in a specific um, aspect, Harpy, Sheriff, Boozer, mm-hmm. Investigator, etc it also goes over the reasons why, uh, a little bit more in depth of why every clan has, like, favored attributes, why they have finesse attributes, why they have um, strength attributes as well, resilient attributes um, per clan. And I thought that was also really good uh, for me, I think what stood out the most in this particular chapter as well, um, that took up a lot of my attention, I thought it was very beautiful to add, and it's something that isn't really presented often in, in most games up until this time when I've seen it print, was there's a beginning, a middle, and an end that's kind of being uh, like described to mm-hmm. the player. Right. It's one thing that no one wants to talk about, because sometimes when you play a game, some people have the mentality of saying, I play to win. And so the uh, the idea of the game, even though we should be able to speak about it in terms of a theme or in terms of what we're hoping to get out of a session, especially at your session zero. This tells you, especially with your characters, like there is going to be an end mm-hmm. and it doesn't tell you end means death End just means, you know, how your story is going to end with your character and when you should or should not retire them. Um have you encountered that before or in this case have you ever considered it? Let's even put it that way when you were probably in your early like days of Requiem Regardless of Addition.
1: I I never considered it until honestly I started playing with you guys and that's because I don't um it wasn't until like when I was playing on on the server with y'all back in like what 20 2018 I think that um, that it, that I played a tabletop game and that's a fun that's a different experience. Right. In that you really like LARPing, we we all have every character has their own personal plot that they're going on personal story. But that stuff will will like roll on. Right. Like there are uh, I think we had the last character from like five years ago retire not too long ago. And it's um, the, that's to say like you you the the ending, the beginning, middle and end for for characters and LARP seems to be stretched out a lot Farther than it is in tabletop right because in, in tabletop because it's a smaller group you can run your personal plot those plots faster you can see those that development uh faster right it has more momentum uh, and, and it's because of that like I was never really confronted with the end of a character that wasn't uh, like um combat oriented. <laughs> uh,
0: do you think that also kind of probably like influenced how people may have seen the game I mean obviously we understand folks that. LARP and Tabletop are, are I wouldn't say, too much of different beasts. They obviously have their own type of end goals here. Mm-hmm. But knowing that there is an end for a character, do you think that if people uh, had approached LARP in that particular fashion or knowing um, what the purpose of their character might be in LARP would have changed anything at all? And it doesn't have to be, you know, obviously what it is. But it, since it's presented in this book, I want to go ahead and see what your take on that is.
1: Yeah, it, I think I think once you... I think it's a question not many players are used to, to hearing, right? Because I've seen some other people react to it. It's was like, what do you mean the end of it? Like, I'm going to play him until he's done, right? And then what story are you trying to get here? And then there's kind of that stutter, right? Like, I never thought about it. Uh, and I know I certainly had that reaction. But now, um, yeah, it, it paints it, uh, it. It's it's a I think it's a game-changing like, uh, perspective, honestly, because um, I know people that have played more... Antagonistic sides, right for for their characters, and anytime you ask them that, um, uh, they those characters don't have a good end to them planned, right? Y- you can't, otherwise you are not. I am um... uh, rambling here. Sorry. Let me let me get back on track, so we're going in the <laughs> same direction. Uh, the, the point is, I think that that um, because you have a set goal, right? For, for any character that has that end you have a, a place that you know for sure this is the re- the direction i want my plot to go right that is um so that's honestly like a uh, sort of like how we have the anchors right in in first area right. we have the the virtue and the vice that's a, and we have aspirations as well um the that's another role-playing guide point you have to move your story along and it's it's incredibly satisfying when you get that end uh that that you planned out which doesn't happen a lot uh i think nine nine out of (laughs) of the ten players that i've talked to that have had this perspective only one of them got to that end and it it happened pretty quickly right because this is the story all right well cool um on to the next one
0: (laughs) i think it's particularly freeing as well because this you know many people don't want to have to approach it because they always we know that people fall in love with those characters there's no reason not to um But it also is nice and bittersweet to see it come to an end. It's also very fulfilling to do so. Mm -hmm. I would also argue that knowing what type of end you have for your character, even if it's just an outline of it, gives you the ability to act and roleplay freely, knowing that you don't have to worry about anything. The story is a story. You've already decided whether or not you're going to betray that mafia boss. You already know whether or not you're in trouble with the prince and his sheriff and or the hounds or scourges that are kind of roaming throughout the city. You know who you've... You got on the hook and whether or not they may or may not betray you. And the thing that pops up in my head is kind of like that. uh, One of the ending scenes, to like uh, Cardito's way, where he's trying to get onto the train. Mm -hmm. But when you take a look at the back of it, he already knew what was happening. He led that lifestyle. And I think knowing that just made the story uh, that much more fulfilling. So that bullet point or like that aspect of of the chapter regarding Kindred uh, characters was definitely um, one that I wanted to point out. Um, but that being the case, that pretty much wraps up chapter one in terms of what we kind of highlighted there. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter two, chapter two is a, a nice little bit of salt, so to speak, and that is the properties of the blood. And Brendan, I know that you wanted to speak about this because you're you're pointing out differences between vitae and blood itself. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so uh, this this is gonna I'm gonna try to make this the last reference I have with Masquerade, right? Like we always <laughs> like to compare and contrast. I honestly don't like doing it. They're both good games, uh, but the the big thing here is um. Going from, from masquerade from Requiem to Masquerade, it was kind of weird because like, all right, the a couple of games in, I was like, this something feels different here, but I couldn't quite put it on, put that that uh finger on it, right? It was all feeling based. And it's there there's there was an innate difference in vampires and requiem. They're much more they're much more primal right on like a base level they're different monsters and that goes down to well the vitae itself like in masquerade we're used to the term vitae right you have vitae that's what vampires have but what's the difference between it and blood uh, that's what vampires have right <laughs> like that was the only that was the only real difference at least that i that i could tell but uh, as as this book highlights Uh, Vitae, it's not just, it's not just the blood that's in, like, a vampire system, so to speak, right? Anytime, whenever a vampire drinks blood, it's, it's, uh, transformed into Vitae, and that has different properties in and of itself, right? It's almost like a living thing, and it's an extension of that vampire. What do I mean by that? When a vampire is shot, stabbed, clawed, bit, they don't bleed. The Vitae does not want to leave their body. Right. If you're feeding it to a ghoul or another vampire, it has to be withdrawn some way or forced out because you do have control over your blood. itself. or I'm sorry, got to use the right terminology. (laughs) The kindred does have control and wide control over the Vitae itself. If you get a hand cut off fingers, uh, you can force that to come after you. Right. Or come after you come back to you. And in a, a, a horrifying and like humanity breaking manner. It's small, but that is a huge change, like just from a, a conceptual level of what we're playing. At least it was for me. That was mind blowing for me when I was reading that, because then like I started getting all these questions going through my head, right? It's like, okay, all right. So is it really just like the body is just a vessel and the vampire is actually just the bataille that's in them? Is that what's happening now if they have that much level of control? And like, you, your beast goes to sleep when you have Vitae, but does it really just go away because you run out of Vitae, right, when you reach, like, torpor like that? And this book doesn't answer it. It doesn't answer it, it doesn't. and it shouldn't.
0: But it's it's interesting to think about because that is a, uh, this is pretty much the whole reason behind this, this particular chapter is how much more can the Vitae do and how does it react? Um, and what does it mean to be a vampire that, uh, that mm-hmm. uses it? And as you were mentioning, this is also like, if you think about, and I'm, I'm going to make the, the comparisons between masquerade if only because it's what most of our audience also knows, but at the same token, we can Fair see point. The differences, right. To, to bring it up. This is also like form of blood. Right, for the meats, like to be able to go ahead and turn completely into blood or being able to use it, or why uh, the Tremere choose in certain cases the path of blood as one of their first, you know, uh, thaumaturgy steps to be able to to take into it. It almost feels like it was always hidden or something that was always brought there, but it makes it personal here because the authors do a really good job of writing up um, just how important it is and how mystical in in nature it is and we spoke about it before in different ways and we kind of glossed over as something that's truly understood but for a newer player who's just getting into requiem at this time based on when it was written 2007 i believe Mm -hmm. you know this is and this is like your first dip you like you're 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 towing it for you it was a second edition but for me um getting into it i was like okay i'm kind of starting to see where this is kind of coming into play here right um one of the things that you and i are talking about as well is like waking up it's you forcing the vitae to actually uh, bring you back out of torpor slumber, and that brings up another good thing about that uh, you were saying about uh, waking up.
1: Yeah, like um, it, it pointed out, like it's not. Uh, again, this is something I never thought about. Like <coughs> you're going to get up, okay? You're going to do something. It takes blood, right? But what? Why? Why does? What does that look like? Right? It's not like there's a there's you've got uh, you've got your engine running during the day. Right, and it's just using little bits of Vitae during the day until it equates to one, like, Vitae drop or whatever measurement that is. It is a concerted act of will to rise from the dead, which is what you do every sunfall, every sundown. I don't know why I said sunfall. (laughs) Right, but it's like all these small things that, that happen. Your vampire is in a constant... Stasis. Nothing happens unless you or your beast make it happen. So all those things, right that that people take for granted, are um, like just normal biological processes. They're um, it's a weird like control of your body that a vampire experiences. Right, that's very unusual. Like me sitting here, I, I they don't none of the listeners hear this because I always edit down every podcast, but I'm like leaning against my desk, right? I'm shuffling in my chair. This I'm getting away from the point, but it's I'm going to circle back to it. Don't worry, DJ. It's all in the uh the same vein that any anything the vampire does is is conscious and requires will. So getting up during the day does require conscious effort it's not like lifting a boulder it's not a sisyphean struggle but it is a conscious choice to rise every night that the vampire makes
0: that's a good thing you bring up though say that again it's a conscious choice to what
1: it's a conscious choice the vampire makes to wake up every night
0: because the alternative is what
1: ah uh, the alternative is well it's torpor Right, that that favorite term we throw away, we throw around. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to to get into it, but um, yeah, that is how voluntary torpor works.
0: I think it's also good to bring up because one of the things is why do it, and especially knowing that the aspect of you willingly wanting to to not will yourself to awake it just shows you how much control of the physiology you as a vampire have there are certain things of course that are dominated by the beast and we'll get to that in a certain aspect of it later on but this is the stuff that you do take control of and i think it's important to kind of highlight that because um, it once again shows you the control over it other things that this chapter kind of covers as well is like why you would use it to imitate life right whereas before um in the masquerade version of it we're talking about like How much more effort it takes for you to kind of give yourself the blush of life and what it actually does you mimicking the out things requiem as we've spoken about through the core book the blood especially when trying to mimic um human-like functions is a lot more intensive this time around Um, especially anything from like being able to to copulate to to go to do coitus to to menstruate even to do all these things that normally wouldn't have been offered in, in the previous version and it's because of the vitae itself or the vitae as we say um, to be able to, to to simulate these acts. And it's all part of of, of being able to bring up, I, I guess for lack of a better term, what those innate powers are that we kind of take for granted. And the book does a really, really good job up until this moment in time to, to speak about like in character why you would even activate a couple of these. Most of the time when we take a look at it, especially in terms of rule books they just kind of give you once again the the flat line of like you spend a point of blood this is what you could do but it it gives you a much more intimate reason as to why and it also kind of gives you some like stories and inserts um regarding uh, a person who is in the middle of hunting right and has to go ahead and provide that blush i thought that was also really cool um another thing i actually thought was cool in this is like it also talks about properties of the blood in many other aspects not only in terms of hunting what your beast might uh, think of it um what the, the vitae means in difference, but also in terms of diablerie. I thought the section on diablerie was really, really cool because what it, it talks about is like we we had this discussion many times, even on our story, like our ST circle, in terms of like how players view diablerie. Mm-hmm. First thing it tells you, obviously, is like players going to go take a look at mechanics, be like, oh man, this is going to be great. I'm going <laughs> to right because it's like yeah. power. Um, All right, that's, that's,
1: well, usually whenever the player is, like, brings up Diablery like that, that quickly, I'm like, all right, yeah, here's, here's the answer to these questions, also, here's your complimentary katana and trench coat, because I know your next questions are going to be about armor and weaponry, Uh,
0: (laughs) but but, yeah. But I think, you're right, because, you know, that's one way to kind of take a look at it through the camber lens, but, you know, this, this one paragraph of sorts talks about, you have every right as a storyteller or even as the person, once again, even though this is for the players, anyone could read this, of course, this should sink and ingrain itself into the players that the rules could also take a backseat. People mm-hmm. are encouraged as well. And we've done this trick a couple of times, uh, you and I, in terms of making sure that it's not just a mechanical thing. It's not just loss of humanity. It is a sinful act. Um, and it, it does stain the soul and there's a lot of stuff to play up to it. And especially because of what that it's no longer it's your Vitae because you stole it from someone else. And, you know, as we were mentioning earlier, what makes a, a vampire tick? What makes that kindred tick up until that moment in time? We've talked about when they wake up, um, how to use it to heal as well as one of the things that they go over to a certain degree. Um, rousing for everything, but you actually taking it from someone else and claiming that Vitae and that no longer being something that animates uh, that particular kindred, but now animates you and what it does to to you. Uh, I thought that was really, really good to kind of take a look at, if only because it outlines it in a fashion that doesn't speak directly to mechanics, but speaks to the action itself. Um, because I don't think we see enough of that in the books. Um, it also goes over like traditions and what did the traditions mean specifically when it comes to the act of the blood? Blood's got its own thing, and especially when it comes to the Vitae. Uh, Masquerade, it it talks about how in Requiem, we understand and we know that images are distortions to vampires. You you Mm -hmm. can't just keep a kindred in an image at one point or another they'll distort. And while it's a mixed blessing because, sure, you could walk through mirrors, you're not going to have many people be able to take a look at you. Um, But it doesn't change the fact that you, it doesn't excuse the stupidity of a vampire to put himself in a position where they see something masquerade breaking, much like Brendan was mentioning before, being able to reattach limbs and someone sees you do it. No amount of distortion is going to stop anyone from being able to see that. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, The progeny, you know, why eventually the loneliness takes hold and why blood calls to blood and why you want to reproduce, Um, how it is a willful act and how most people, especially in Requiem versus um, what you would normally see in Max's grade are usually groomed for this mm-hmm. to happen. And which, then of course,
1: which to, to to talk about that. That's not to say that the passion embraces won't happen, right, or couldn't happen. And it does make sense. Right, right, it's right, just right. those are I, I don't ever see those being seen as like actual mistakes more than just like tragic circumstances. Because imagine in situations like that, I imagine like some uh, some vampire that uh, I don't know lo- most likely lost a touchstone, some connection. Right. That was meaningful, like cast adrift and feels that they're losing their what's left of their humanity. And so with that, what's the what's the best way to get a companion? Right. Because maybe they had a ghoul before, but that's that might seem like great at first. But then it becomes apparent that the ghoul is is unabashedly addicted to the vitae in your veins. Right. It's it's someone who's not with you through like their own choice. Right. And there is there's an inherent power dynamic difference there. Maybe you want something that someone that's more on your level, some companion, right? But what that means is you're damning someone and in a moment of of like passion or depression. You bring them into this uh, into your requiem, right? So those those situations can happen where the the embracey, uh, the chilled rather, is uh, maybe not quite as uh, not quite the norm. But it it can still happen, but it's no even in those situations, it's no less willful.
0: Right. And it's interesting because I think uh, first edition really takes a lot of stock into making this willful act. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the things that kind of also adds the romanticism about it because this is like where the passion in Vampire comes from. Why else create without giving it any meaning? And by that same token, why not create, you know, because one of the things that we always take a look at and we've spoken about before is, why doesn't this generation vampire just create more of himself or herself in this particular case or themselves? And this kind of answers the reason as to why there is a calling for it, especially in Requiem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part, it talks about, once again, just visits Amrath slash Diabrily uh, and why that price is paid, not only mechanically, but what it should represent for your players. An interesting tidbit about this as well is, like, damage types. Um, and I thought this was a really interesting portion, if only because from the perspective of how we looked at it from the core book, it really doesn't mention where there was a difference between your bashing lethal mm-hmm. and aggravated outside of what we normally see. But it gives a little bit more breadth and the reason why they're described in that particular fashion. Um, and I think you had some stuff to say about that,
1: right? Yeah, so... Um bashing and lethal they kind of make sense right though those are easy to wrap your head around bashing is like bruised up banged up lethal is it's life-threatening well not if you're a vampire right uh what aggravated is though and i think this throws a lot of people for a loop right it's just they're like well it's just more severe like lethal damage but it's not chronicles makes a, a a big distinction about what aggravated damage is and why it's so rare Right, while you'll you'll hardly find anything that like deals it, and that's because it's damage from a supernatural source. It's supernatural effects. It's things that would not happen in a mundane situation because of that. They don't leave normal, like normal effects. Like mortals can take aggravated damage, not to say that they're immune to it for some reason, but the effects those have, or it's like um, it's like the flesh will just fall off from their bones, right, it has horrifyingly, uh, distinct MF effects, more than a, a stab wound with profusive bleeding, right, and on vampires, it almost looks, it almost looks like corrupting, right, like if, uh, taking, uh, aggravated damage from fire might leave, like, uh, distinctive blackened uh, burns that look like they follow up through your veins right and that's i go to that length to say that while they're that distinctive they're also innately masquerade breaking these are things that should not happen normally and are visible are recognizable as wrong
0: right and do you think by the same token it masquerade breaking would also be healing. I would almost argue, right, in terms of how that the vitae starts to actually knit that body together, as you were mentioning before.
1: Oh, absolutely, because you it takes. Uh, you know, uh, bashing damage might not be uh, like. Super dangerous for mortals, but they're going to carry around that black eye for a while, right? Or those bruises on their arms. But you're walking around, you might have just gotten... uh, You might have met your friend Gary after you got into a scuffle at the bar. And as you're talking to him, you see his like black eye just start to disappear as you're talking to him. And you're like, what? Mm
0: -hmm. And it's funny because... It was one of those things that we were mentioning before just doesn't kind of get explained as often. But another thing that this also does mention is the ties of blood. And I think one of the things that we that we didn't cover before and not in much. We, we spoke about it once again in court is the
1: blood sympathy, the right? That's what you're blood talking sympathy. about.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, what did you get, especially when they spoke about blood sympathy here versus what was actually brought up in the core book? Like, did it solidify it for you a little bit more than what we originally anticipated?
1: I think it did. I think it did. It went more into more specifics. It didn't it didn't really have like a a ton of information because I don't think it's needed, but it goes into enough detail and giving you like examples to really hit that home. And I think it also shows another reason, like what you what you mentioned before when we were talking about progeny, right? Like why people wouldn't just go around making vampires. Well, not only is it a willful act that has that cost then, there's a cost that comes with making vampires like from that point forward for forever and that you're always innately and intimately tied with them to the point that if you frenzy, right, you let's uh, concrete example time. Uh, you, you, DJ, are the Ancilla vampire that embraces me, Brennan, right? And I'm, I'm like, screw you, DJ. I didn't ask for this. And I run and join the Carthians, right? And I'm getting into some scuffle, right? And I go through my first frenzy with those Carthians somewhere. You, the sire, would feel that. Assuming we're in the same city, right? Somewhere, Mm -hmm. even remotely in the right position, that, that those emotions would are transferable there's communic communication that can occur between kindred which is mind-boggling mind-boggling to me but makes <laughs> sense we see things like this i think in like um i think it was like the the dracula film with like gary oldman wasn't there a point where he was like drinking from a woman night overnight and then like there were she was having visions of him and there was that blood sympathy coming into effect i was like holy crap it's just like that and it was the first time like i had uh, i seen that in action
0: i think that's also really cool uh because you're right that investment even though mechanically we take a look at it from a point of you know a willpower to go ahead and create a vampire when you take a look at it from the blood's perspective as in the book's It only helps further solidify that bond, that that investment carries over. And I think that is a that is cool in the sense of being able to say, okay, well, if if you're if I'm your your sire and you're my child and you're able to kind of draw that line back, it's the mystical resonance in it. And it's something that wasn't brought up before uh, in terms of like when it was around Masquerade and even more so in the beginning Uh, Of Requiem because we knew that the sympathy was there, but he had to come up with very clever ways to kind of bring it up, especially as a newer player. Yeah. So this was kind of one of those things where you start putting it together, going like, ah, okay. I see what you're doing here, and I could see where I could start playing with this a little bit more. In fact, I think this is one of the things that you could make a couple of stories after, right? Someone actually going missing and then you feeling the pull elsewhere. Or what happens when you don't feel the blood sympathy pull anymore. And that could kind of lead to some interesting chronicles there. But this kind of gives you that kickstart to kind of give you, you know, that that base template of how you should be kind of approaching it. Um the other thing that this thing that this chapter mentioned I thought was it, it was uh one of the things H. Age different than masquerade. Age in terms of you being that elder who has stayed awake as long as possible. And what makes it different than we've seen before in the previous iteration being masquerade, we see that most vampires there just grow in power. Mm-hmm. They're cognizant, they're good, they're willing, they're just waiting, they're arrogant, they have power and potency behind them to do stuff. But when you get there in terms of age, it's interesting that it describes it as you getting slower and or sluggish in the process of doing so and that you're literally fighting to kind of stay awake night after night um and you would think that or at least i would think and i think this is where i'm asking for for your opinion on it as well like if you're that much stronger knowing that you've grown in blood potency, and you know that the only things you could probably feed off of right now happen to be other vampires like how do you envision that in your head? Is that something that you thought was going to go down in that way? Or did you think they were just going to be as sharp as like masquerade vampires when you heard about what age does to a vampire in Requiem? Well,
1: I didn't really think either. This was one of the things that didn't like uh, hit me until they brought it up. I was like, well, I never thought of that, but it makes sense. Right. It's like at some point as you're going through with age, right, it's not just the accumulation of power. Right. Like um, once once vampires have their their fix for blood in everything else is a distraction is what it comes down to. Any games they play uh, may increase where they can hunt, but all these these power games are really what they're going to do to to spend their time beyond what their, their beast urges them to do, right? Because there's always that innate competition. But what happens when you're winning that competition? You're top dog and you have been for <laughs> centuries. Boredom sets in, right? And that... And on top of that, there is that age, that sluggishness makes absolute sense to me because I can imagine like, you know, you know how like when you were a kid, it seemed time passed incredibly slower than it did now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like there's that, there is that, uh, innate. boredom in between. Yeah, that, and there's that innate like sense of time difference that changes when you have like, you know. When you have centuries to look back on and remember like it's it's ridiculous to think like there's there's a you'd be in a hurry to do a damn thing right like I've had forever I'm I he something might be slow or you might just be innately slow to react not that you're consciously doing it right it's just you're so used to how things have been acting there's there's nothing to force you to speed up and because there's nothing forcing you to move your beast is getting bored it's getting it's fall, slowly falling to torpor, and you're losing more and more reasons to, to not. Like, at, at some point, if you're if you a politically acute vampire, at some point the thought's gonna cross into your mind, Mr. Elder Dominator, that, uh, well, if I go to sleep, I lose everything. I have a reason to wake up again.
0: And... Before we move on a little bit further than that, I think the it's funny that you mentioned how you interpreted age and their sluggishness. And when I started, kind of going over it, I interpreted their sluggishness the same way you would when you take a look at a cat or a dog that's overly fed, <laughs> and it's just like, and like half the time they're just asleep. Yeah, it's like the only time I'm getting up is just to get up and get food, and then it's back to sleepy time we go. Right, and I think because and like the way I see it is like a bloated tick for for these vampires who have just grown in blood potency, uh, you know, where they can no longer feed on animals or mortals, and all they're feeding off of is other kindred. That like their beast is like, I'm not going to expend this much energy. It costs me just this much to go ahead and get up and and get noms. As soon as I'm done with that, back to sleep I go. And I, I think, like, I'm not sure if that's what the authors intended of doing so, but that's kind of how I'm taking that insinuation. That's how I would kind of play it. Uh,
1: h- how I'm taking that is torpor is really just a prolonged diet for the beast, and uh, I'm not against
0: that interpretation, DJ. <laughs> But you're right, because that actually leads us into torpor. And I think what, uh, <laughs> you know, torpor, <laughs> they mentioned, as we have spoken about uh-huh. before, is a voluntary action because you control the BT to go ahead and do so. And uh, what it mentions in terms of torpor is um, sometimes you just want to do it to breathe life back into that anyway that you've gone through, right? That ennui that you're you're about to embrace or have been embracing for years. The, the prospect of just going to sleep and hoping that when you wake up, things aren't the same, even up to and including... You being confused, lost or whatever, just because it's new and exciting is a thrill of a concept for people who have just stayed awake way too long. But that's one aspect of it being the conscious aspect where, you know, the the ego says, hey, BTW, this is what we're going to do because I want this for me. But you mentioned up as well the beast going on a diet. Mm -hmm. Do you like would you feel that that's probably more of a motivator for you than it would be? Uh, that, otherwise,
1: uh, as I'm going to change the terminology for it, because it's, it's jokey. And uh, the uh, while well, I found it funny at the time, uh, it's, it's it's a serious thing like that. Uh, I'm going to keep saying it. The diet is a serious consideration for elders, right? Because, well, like you talked about, at some point they're going to get to where the only thing that nourishes them is the vitae of other kindred. And that's not something that is easy to do necessarily, and it certainly makes every other kindred around you just a little bit more nervous. At some point, it's it's not worth the hassle. Um, and uh, another another reason I'm going to pivot because I, I I've always loved this as soon as I read about it in the Invictus. Uh, thing is or in the Invictus book is the uh well like partnerships with other kindred that uh and you might be thinking, but very in China, how does how does partnerships with other kindred like work into torpor?
0: Right? Dynastic houses, you mean or like the cycles?
1: Yes, the cyclical houses, right? The right. cyclical dynasties, I think is what they called where like Right, 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 right. Right. Where three uh for, for those of you that, that don't know what that is, quick explanation. It is when two or more kindred come together and decide, all right, we're gonna combine all of our resources, everything we have, our two lines, and those that are loyal to us. Two are asleep, one are awake. And that one that is awake has control of everything. And it is their duty, their agreement that they will shepherd it and grow it, and that way we can sleep. And have new new lease on life when we awaken, right? And while that's specific to the Invictus, there's no reason at all that that's unique to them, right? I, I can see that working in, like, Carthian, uh, Carthian Secretariats, if you want to get fancy about it, right? Or, or some pretty scary circle of the Crone cults.
0: They do mention it bed. in a circle of the because remember that one of the things that we also should mention within torpor is you dream, uh-huh. and that's the scarier part. It's you literally dream. It's not the uh, it's not like you haven't dreaming like in Masquerade. It's like it's a nightmare because you give up control to know that you're going to wake up, but your memories just become foggy. You know, one of the things that they also mention uh, in this chapter is the fact that your body doesn't age, but your mind does. And mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time, your your consciousness is frayed at the edges, like burnt nerves. And being able to seep through it and, and torpor is a huge deal. And as you were mentioning, cyclical houses or dynasties for the Invictus. But the Circle of the Crow, one of the things that we also spoke about in that book is they know how to control um, or at least make the, the dreams more pleasant uh, during it, right? They could commune with, perhaps it's a communion with the beast, maybe it's a communion with the ego or what makes the kindred to kindred. Um, but it's one of the greater mysteries that does exist and it's one of the things that is alluring. But the, the sad part is it's almost like a lose-lose, right? Because on one end, you either stay awake and you feel the sluggishness of the beast and the age dragging you down and you give in to Torpor, but if you do, you're giving into to that nightmare um, and you don't know what's going to come out the other side, even though you think it's accelerating. Or otherwise, that could be another reason why you just stay awake as long as you do.
1: Here's a... Um... An incredibly dark idea I've had on torpor for a little while now, specifically around this, right? The the dreams you have in torpor. What if the reason those happens, like the reason why your memories are corrupted or distorted, is is it's because even in torpor, the beast isn't fully asleep. It still needs to feed off of something, right? Sort of like why bears get fat during the, the summer so they can sleep through the winter, but they're still like burning some energy, right? Well, vampires feed off of blood, but why is that? It's because they feed off of life. That's what vitae means, right, or, or refers to. What if the the life of the vampire is distilled down to the memories they have, right, of while they were alive and while they were right. undead? And while they're in that torpor state, the the beast is feeding off their memories, taking chunks from it, right, and just, like, warping it. As like a, a price and that's why it's so disturbing and terrifying
0: i like that i like that a lot because then you could see when someone actually does disturb someone from torpor, they start to rise from it that beast starts look outward and that's mm-hmm. when it starts to attack them you know and interestingly enough that actually segues into like the next topic i wanted to cover especially with the properties of the blood is actually the beast this book really outlines something uh funny which is like in other things, we've discussed the ways the beast can manifest and the ways we played around with the beast itself. This book actually outlines, like, the beast could change shape in most cases as well, mm-hmm. depending on what it's looking at. Because that beast is an outward representation, but it tells you, like, the beast can make you look to- taller, shorter, It'll look like it has glossed over eyes, and will give you a, a different type of, like, tick that you never knew you had. Maybe the tapping of your arm or maybe just, like, your facial expressions, etc. Um, but there's no explanation why it does what it does outside of the fact that we know that the beast is kind of taking hold. And that kind of makes you wonder, as you were mentioning before, one aspect of it could be Torpor, right? Where it starts to feed in on itself because one way or another, this 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 thing inside of you is forcing you to do so. But do you also think as well that because we know that you could either grow taller, shorter, gloss over eyes or, or something like that, uh, or rather in the way that it was expressed in this book, that it could also be tied directly to the Nosferatu?
1: I can see that, right? Like the, the curse of the Nosferatu is that the, the beast is more visible. Like there's, um, you, you, vampires look human, but it's all a facade, right? It's so that they don't spook the prey. And then that facade is weaker. It's torn up. It's in disrepair for the Nosferatu. I've, um, I've not ever worded it like that before, but you, you saying that like, yeah, I think, I think I would agree with that. Actually, that's I think that's beautiful.
0: And that makes it cool because we get to see ways that you could play around with the beast. We know that its main things are just hunger, sleep, mm. uh, eat, kill um, as directives. But in terms of how they manifest, I could, all, you know, it's another <laughs> one of the images that popped up in my head was uh, Men in Black. The first one where the guy was written by that roach alien. Oh, yeah. and you start to see. Right. And it's just like the the outward expression of it, knowing that it's being written by the beast as it twerks and just like twitches and like it starts off looking somewhat normal until like you know the the desiccation of the body starts to set in a little bit but it's still beast that's kind of writing it that's kind of one way I was kind of also looking at it but that was uh that's kind of what drew up to mind there
1: i think this is this brings up like a um an implicit kind of question, right? Like we have right. stated before, your uh, the the bodies of kindred are static, right? They're not changing. But mm-hmm. well, we talked about in the Ordo book that's not that's not necessarily true. Through like painstaking, literally painful situations, or through constant and through concentrated acts of will, you can elicit changes in your body. And we see the the beast doing that, if at least temporarily. But then earlier in the book, we see um, like with with the vitae itself. Right, how uh, you can you can will it to act, to move, to return to you, right, or to stay in your body. So, can you make changes through, like, just through force of will alone? I believe you actually could do it. That a vampire could have a, could have a tattoo stick, right, through through willpower. It could have piercings because we they can do that with the um like appearing through media, right, or in reflections. That's, they have that control over their image, but now with this beast, I, I don't see any reason why this couldn't be a very interesting like, uh, personal experience to go through where you start seeing how much control do you have over your body.
0: And I think in certain cases, uh, especially when we're taking a look at the show as a bloodline, right, uh, in one of our earlier yes. books. Like that is the thing. The expression is there, and it makes you wonder whether or not the expression is. And you're right; whether it's a conscious expression or it's expression of the beast, or if the beast could just tap into it and pull yeah. it out. Um, that, like, like I said, this one paragraph alone kind of just got our wheels kind of turning about it. And it's one thing, especially for players, to kind of think about in terms of how they want to interact with their beast. Because the chapter also kind of goes into um, in the frenzies, right? And they go into it a little bit more in chapter three, which we should probably mm-hmm. reach there, which is yeah. the vampire psychology. Right. And I, I think uh, before we go into it, uh, accepting unlife, mm-hmm. one of the first things, like getting into the mindset of what happens once you become a vampire. Brent, what are your thoughts on that?
1: It is. Uh, well, of course, it's a it's a jarring experience, right? I don't, You can't word that any other way. Like I think every vampire film has covered that because that's a, it's a life ending thing. When when you become a vampire, you still have those memories of humanity, right? Your actual humanity, but slowly coming to grips with what you are now. It's, um, it's, it's the oldest, I think, vampire plot that's played, but it's central to every vampire game and it, it never gets old for me, right? This is, um, this whole section right here, or rather that, that phrase accepting on life, I think is the core of the vampire game when you get down to it. Cause that's personal horror at its like, uh, uh core.
0: What do you think out of, so one of the things, especially to our listeners is like, we know this, there's a, there's a couple lines that we've read, uh-huh. especially like in once again, masquerade books that we've gone over and especially in the beginning of, of our Requiem journey. But what in this book regarding how it's like depicting the acceptance of unlife caught your attention?
1: Uh, because, well, that's there everything that follows is pretty much the entire psychological condition of vampires is accepting it right you can almost uh you could almost swap out the the names of the chapter and it would be it would be correct but the um it's like what what does what does that what does that journey look like right do they do do they cut ties with their family? And if they don't, what, what happens there? Right. What if, um, mm-hmm. I never see players talking about this. It's like every, every vampire that's ever embraced has been like a, a orphan that never got married. Right. But the vast majority right. of people have like romantic connections. They have spouses, they have parents, cousins, uncles, like extended family networks. And you never see that come into to play. And
0: I, I, I hate it. <laughs> You're no, and you're not wrong. And I, I'm glad you brought it up because think about it like, um, when we think about a character, we become too selfish with it, and we only uh-huh. begin the, our character sometimes only exists in the vacuum. And I think that's the beauty of this chapter, as well, along with Requiem, um, is just bringing to the forefront that you don't exist in that vacuum while simultaneously existing in its own vacuum. Why? Because you are not divorced for the most part from the people that were around you as much as you want to be your lovers, your family your friends, etc. But by, by the same token, that isolation comes because your Requiem is lonely unless you start finding mm-hmm. other monsters to kind of go through it with. Um, and I, I guess we could kind of blend this together because this is this also goes over the stages of unlife, right? Oh, Anything yeah. from being a, ne- a neonate where you're the initial go-getters because you're like, what do I do with my current life? And, you know, it outlines why they're the most ambitious, expendable, and the ones that usually have the highest humanity. Why, you know, Ansley. Are are coming to terms with what they are after a certain amount of time, and they're the ones most prone uh, to be able to embrace. In fact, this book kind of says that about sixty to seventy years. That's when they start really getting lonely, and they're like, "I need to do something" yeah. because they've already seen a generation pass. And I guess, like any most biological Which, creature, they if, want to pass that like legacy, right?
1: If I can talk about that, I, I think I think you actually you, you hit it right on the money. That is a big thing. Like when you see when when you've passed the certain amount of point where you're like. I was embraced before this person was born. And now this person is retired after a sixty-year career, right? That is a uh, I, in my mind that would be a, a breaking point for for any vampire with their retaining on human on humanity because that is a fundamental thing. Like I am not human now. That's not um there, there's there's no way around it. It's almost like a slap in the face. And so to to assuage that loneliness to to uh have a child that they never could before right it's it's almost uh it's it's sad to to think of it that way but it's it's absolutely uh a valid reason why a vampire wouldn't and and on top of that a vampire at that age they're they're coming to terms with it right like in i think coming to terms with it what in what is involved with that is a, a vampire is going to shed humanity down these stages. Like there are going to be vampires that like cling to it and perhaps raise it. I've uh, full disclosure, I've never been interested in those stories. It's just never appealed to me because I think the struggle against the descent is one of the the biggest things about it. Or right, one of the most compelling aspects of the game at least for me. But what that what I don't agree with now a lot of people see humanity as well. If you've if you've losing humanity, it's it's because you've done evil things, right? If you're if you're a good vampire, if you're a good guy and you don't hurt people and you don't steal and you don't kill, well, it's not going to be a problem. You'll still keep your humanity, and that's fundamentally not true. At least in Requiem, right? Right. Well, uh, why? Because humanity is not a gauge of morality. It is how close you are to being human or how alien you are from being human. Right? It's not, um, in, in this book, like, uh, it, it paints a picture that breaking points are not co- necessarily caused by individual actions, but by realizations. If you get, into if you're that neonate vampire right in the first rung of the uh the vampire ladder and you get into a car wreck where if you were immortal you would be dead but you you get up and you see like you can see your your ribs poking out of your chest and then you watch as it like fixes itself goes back inside your chest and the flesh holds like heals over it that is a breaking point because it is point blank undeniable you're no longer human right
0: right and uh, you know you mentioning that kind of brings into play because you and i both also have uh you know gone through second edition as well and one of the breaking points in that game is literally surviving something that would normally have killed someone right and i think this book was probably like the prototype of where it became that much more apparent because i also do agree that the way that they treat humanity is exactly that it's the realization of of something you are or are not or let's be real what you are not and what level of uh what, le- what level of sanity, for lack of a better term, you have regarding yeah. how you accept what it is that you are by comparison, and t- right? So that sliding scale is different in that case. And it, that, uh, like, to speak to that is, is very, very strong because it, it, it hits different, as as we use the, the terms these days, right? It hits different than what you, we normally saw in, in Masquerade versus now, or even in the core book until now.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And to, to add on that just a, a little bit more, one of the things that uh, I think surprises every player every time it comes up is joining a covenant is a breaking point, right? And I bring this up not to take us away from the point because it, it is part of the stages of life, right? Of, of accepting unlife. Because these covenants, we I think we've beat this to death, right? Every covenant has like dogma it follows its tenets its beliefs and they're inherently inhuman but the point of them is to offer some anchor for kindred that is the point of covenants they're their philosophies for life that guide kindred through their requiems and accepting one of those accepting that you're not human and that you are this type of beast a controlling one uh, a damned beast that believes they're they're basically tempters and devils or demons or that they're like scions of, of ancient shadow cults, right? Whatever that is. Right. That is a, a rejection of humanity inherently, but also an embrace of this is why I exist. This is my purpose in my Requiem, and it allows them to move forward.
0: And... It's funny because now that we define that, knowing what that is, it speaks lastly about the elders. Those have existed mm-hmm. years plus, right on average. And it talks about how at this at this point they've pretty much seen it all, done it all, and at the very least in terms of how they view their cycles, and especially in a shorter timeline because of how long they stay awake. And it's those that either get to choose a new fate, um, and/or have done so much that they're just becoming the conquerors that they do. Which also speaks to the amount of realization of the type of beast that they are, or at this point the type of like apex predator that they are, um, and whether or not they choose to go into torpor or otherwise. Those that normally have the power aren't going to give it up, but that we're talking about that contradiction again when we're speaking about age, where at one point they may or may not go to sleep, and this is the precarious thing because at, at, the way they kind of paint elders in this book makes me think of a sar. Like, they've now gotten to the point where they're near supernova, where they've already reached, like, the zenith of it. They're shining the brightest right now. And it's a possibility it's either going to blow up or just dim away. Uh, uh, But that's the way I'm viewing it right now. Like, did you have any, uh, like, did you get that same impression? Or what are your thoughts on on Elders? And I know we're running short on time, but.
1: Um, My impression of Elders is, um, my, my impression of these, the life cycles of the Kindred, is always tied up to how the second book describes them because i think it describes it beautifully right the um and to, to elucidate the listeners uh it, it cuts them up in that it compares the the neonates to coyotes the the scavengers the the smaller ones almost underdogs but the most numerous which if you know about coyotes there they are scavengers and they are almost everywhere uh <laughs> But I won't regale you with, like, Tales of Tennessee Coyotes today. I'll save that for the next <laughs> podcast. The The Ancilla are, are the wolves, right? They still operate in coteries, but they're a bit stronger. They're more bold. They're more deadly. Uh, and then up at the top are the elders, who stand alone, right? But they're the strongest. Typically, elders aren't in coteries, because they don't need it, right? Unless there is a, a coterie of elders out there, and that is, uh, that's, that's nothing to... Well, oh, to just disregard out of hand. But uh the, the elder the elder stage is always the hardest for me to wrap my head around because it is always and I think that's true of everyone, because it's not we're we're people, we're not vampires. It takes a lot of effort to portray a monster that we're inherently not. But when you take it to another level of abstraction where you've seen centuries worth uh, of developments, where you're older than the country you live in that that's that's a mindset that's incredibly difficult to to replicate or or to fake and i still have trouble thinking about all right what what would make a good elder that's why i don't typically introduce elders unless i have a good reason for them
0: Mm -hmm. I, i agree um i think this touches upon that like this is one of the first few ones that we see especially in first edition regarding what that elder mindset is and i know that in masquerade there was the elysium book that gives a very good depiction of how mm-hmm. they operate but that's also based on the fact that those vampires stay active like there's rarely a reason to go to torpor as much as we do currently in in requiem but i know that there was the the thousand i forgot
1: thousand years of night or yeah thousand right. years of night
0: something into that right and mm-hmm. i think you know this is one of the once again this is one of the prototypes of what makes it good and this accurately speaks to the vampire. Like this, this one chapter alone, the psychology behind a vampire differs a lot from most player guys that we've seen in the past, um, because it accurately gets you in that requiem mindset. This is once again calling back to um, what that developer's note was in the beginning of that forward. And you know, one of the other things that this chapter also brings up, interestingly enough, and I, I you know, as we we end cap this, is the psychology behind the usage of disciplines. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've seen that in much detail in any supplement before.
1: No, it's it's Uh, something people don't really ever talk about because you don't think about it. Right. right? How would how would having Celerity five change you on a fundamental level?
0: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this is one of the things that you have conversations with your players or you as the player may have not taken into consideration usually. Let's be real. Every now and then, we're like, "I want this dot," or like, "I want wolf claws." Right. What's the closest way? Pop, 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 pop. Buy as many points as possible because I want this power. Um, but for those of you who are trying to get a look into how your character may progress and the psychology behind it, it, it goes over every discipline, every dot um, in terms of how a vampire may see it. And I know that you, uh, for for purposes of keeping time here, you know, we each chose two, um, and. Brennan, what were your two and why?
1: So my my two were uh, were possession and uh, sovereignty, uh, which is the the dominate five and and majesty five powers. Uh, in second ed, uh, it's basically swapped out for another power called Idol. Different names, same same idea behind them. Right. So uh, possession is uh, it's something I've never heard a player say. I want I want the power of possession. Right. I think it's a it's a underutilized and often slept on power. But from a someone who possesses that, especially a kindred who's bound to to the night, that is that's unbelievable power you're able to wield to literally steal someone's life, live it for yourself, and then give it up, and then like just every night you could experience something different with different people. Mm-hmm. It's it's inherently uh, not inhibiting. What's the word I'm looking for? Enabling for for like um. It reminded me of that Twilight Zone episode about that child that has godlike powers. When you are able to do things like that, the yeah. so easily the the urge to do them or to to not do them is, is severely diminished. Right, your your control is is almost non-existent when it's barely when you can do things like take another person's identity with barely a thought. And that that's fundamentally like corrupting for a kindred, something that facilitates their slide away from their humanity closer to their beast. And the the reason I picked uh, sovereignty and in, in idol to, to also talk about the second at power is because they do the same thing but from different ways. They they're they're at the the top of that ladder for majesty, right? But when you have that and you're wielding it, you are you've snaked your way into the hearts of those around you made it to the point where you yourself are like an addicting presence. They do anything for, for validation from you. And there's, there's nothing you could do to make them. Well, turn away from you. They would give you anything when you have that power to take anything. And at this point you don't, it doesn't have to be a thought. These people would willingly do it for you. That's uh that's an even darker, um, uh what what's the synonym for corrupting right not to not to yeah it's insidious it's it's terrifying and uh I, i think these powers any of these powers really could wind up making the kindred that wield them a victim of it themselves
0: and i think that also leads me to the two powers i chose um and i chose the physical ones and the reason i chose the physical ones is because one of the things that we usually toy around with as well is sometimes, especially in our games, characters don't understand just what it means to have a dot like extreme amount of potence or vigor in certain cases or celerity as it's known across, you know, both Masquerade and Requiem. But the psychology behind it, especially when it comes to like, for example, celerity, celerity just tells you at one point uh, you grow super dependent on the fact that you just move faster than everyone, that you forget that everyone's just moving slower than you are. And it could lead to i wouldn't say derangements as it's known in the book, but it'll definitely lead to the fact that there's a, a certain perception that your vampire will have, and it'll also just continuously increase right so I think you know one of the lines that is mentioned here is and I'll, I'll read it as a quote because it's it's really interesting in addition to the supreme overconfidence that a vampire who makes frequent use of celerity is likely to develop as the notion that he is literally untouchable to take root. The real potential for mental damage lies in the discipline's insidious, self-necessitating aspect. What begins as an occasional luxurious burst becomes eventually an ingrained strategy. As he throws himself into situations that he cannot sur- it cannot be survived without the rapidity that he has come to rely on, something the vampire could literally not live without. It's an addiction. Right, And the same thing happens with vigor. Vigor speaks to the fact that people who are usually prone to have higher uh, points in, in vigor, uh, which is like the, the equivalent of potence, they're hungrier than most because of their overdependence. They feed mm-hmm. because they're just like punching holes in everything and are crushing things without notice. Um, and in some cases, this is the only discipline that also mentions that they have to become somewhat conscious of their actions lest they break anything they touch. Um, one of the ways that kind of mentioned was like practicing martial arts just to know. Had to control the amount of, of emotion and, and strength that you put behind everything. But, you know, knowing that, one thing that I want to bring up is I made a parallel analogy to this in terms of how we're talking about it now, especially because of the psychology behind it versus um, where we are with, like, Kruak, where Kruak is directly tied into humanity and the loss of it and you obviously giving up a portion of it to the beast in order for you to be able to commune with it or know that mm-hmm. there's something innate with it. Do you also feel that the way that it, these disciplines and the usage of these disciplines and how it seems like, and once again, does the word pops up, the insidiousness of discipline and the overdependence of it could also be tied to humanity. Would you also play it that way where you start seeing disciplines rise as humanity starts to drop because you see that happening? Or do you even feel on the inverse, you know, section of it that someone on high humanity could live with themselves based on the way that these disciplines are being used and what the the lure for it is
1: i, I see i see where you're going with that and i, I would agree to an extent um gotcha. I, I can see people with with higher humanity uh, not having more advanced disciplines not having more devotions because they're clinging to what made them to what humanity they have left and the the expression of these vampiric powers is inherently inhuman, right? I would not really compare it to Kruak because I believe what happened its relationship with the beast. Of course. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. is unique and special. And that's that's an incredibly uh, devious thing, Kruak. That um mm-hmm that's separate from disciplines, even though it's under like the, the discipline umbrella. Right. But blood magic is right. right. Uh, but, uh, to, to make that a more succinct answer. Uh, yes, I I think I would agree that I, I wouldn't like hard cap it at all, but I would, I would nudge things more, right. Make people make players be more introspective, like, uh, about, um, why they would advance these powers. And I do right. the same thing I, for blood potency as well, right? Because I think we we've right. talked about uh, or the there are references to to increasing blood potency, right? How often does it come up? Well, it's about every 50 years, but not not really, right? Some neonates come in with two if they have like, you know, um if they continually feed on blood that they that is higher than what they need, if they have an over reliance on disciplines, right, which becomes even more like mm-hmm. uh, dark to tie that back into humanity and the beast, right? Because the beast mm-hmm. just laid a trap. Look at all the the sweet things you can get with just a little bit of majesty. Just you know, give in to me just a little bit more,
0: right? And I like and I I like playing around with that. And I agree. And I, I didn't mean to make a direct correlation to correct, but I I do like. The thought, especially as a storyteller, like even though it's from a player's perspective, I see both sides of it. One, it gives me guidance as to if I was playing a character with Celerity 3, Vigor 3, or in this case, if I made it all the way up to, you know, possession and/or um, sovereignty. Mm-hmm. How, how should it express itself, especially in the game? Because let's also be real, one of the bigger draws to this book as we come to a close, and my thoughts on it are it gives you. The guidance, especially if you are coming in completely fresh, but also at the same token, if you ever feel like you're getting stuck, um, the psychology behind it, I think, is what drew me the most, right? And as we're talking about it, I could see as a player where... As I start becoming more reliant on saying I want to go in celerity, this might also affect my role play. And then I could start seeing where I'm starting to lose humanity along the way. Or I have to make reconciliation of like, oh man, I got to stop it. And how cool would that story be for me to be like, I need to stop using this discipline. But at the same token, I can't help the fact that I move quicker than you do and someone's got to make that action. And so you kind of play that game of sacrifice. And once again, it is a personal horror game. And I think that the way it expresses itself here is great. On the flip side, as a storyteller, this is also really cool because knowing what it is that should be driving your players you could drop them like a little bit of like you know those old Bacardi commercials where it just says like just add Bacardi and you just see the Bacardi bottle like (laughs) go splash on the outside right so it's like oh there's there's the one scene yeah Bacardi here's where you see it kind of like explode or become something a little bit more flavorful Uh I see whereas from a storyteller's perspective as well like if you if you were interested in looking at creative ways and you haven't thought about it before of how to implement um, these disciplines or what they could do to the psyche of a vampire this would kind of be a good drop on it um, but i think that kind of brings us to the end of the blood um, brent do you have like any closing thoughts on the book um in terms of what it brought how do you recommend what what are your thoughts
1: uh, my thoughts on it are my my initial impression of the book was completely wrong don't sleep on this book it is a great book to read even if you're a masquerade player and not Able to to be in a Requiem game. There's a lot of insights in here, and I know we talked about like the the Vite specific stuff, right? So maybe not that, but the 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 life cycles and especially the psych, psychological aspects. I think that that spans both Requiem and Masquerade, and uh, I think if you if you take it to heart, it will vastly change your role play.
0: Agreed. Agreed. I think that I would look at this book. I would read this book in two ways. One, I would definitely give it the once over, especially if you're wanting to be very thorough or you're starting your character from scratch. Um, it'll definitely do you service in terms of giving you the tips and tricks that you need. Alternatively, speaking, if you're an OG player and you're just trying to to figure something out, it's a great reference guide. You don't have to read the entire thing, but if you're like, man, I wonder what if I could, all right, flip to this page, got it, that's my reference guide. Go back to game, close the book, head back in there. So I think it's really, really well suited as a reference guide for people who have. Uh, who are veterans or at least have some tenure with the game. Um, But it's definitely worth the once over, especially if you're newer. Um, But it definitely gets thumbs up from me. In fact, this was probably the one book I always use, especially uh, regardless of system, regardless of whether it's Masquerade or Requiem. This is the book I always came back to as a reference guide for how I wanted my character to express um, the usage of disciplines or what was going on in their head. So it it gets definite high marks from me. Um, But I think that being the case, that closes us out for... um, vampire the requiem the blood and i think what is our next book that's up brian uh
1: the next requiem book will be bloodlines the chosen
0: there we go more bloodlines for us to play around with uh but as bob would say thank you folks for spending the time with us uh and listening to us and supporting us we greatly appreciate it uh brennan it's been a pleasure to have a conversation with you regarding this book we yeah. Wish bob was here but we'll get him next time mm-hmm. yeah and but, uh, likewise to you my friend Right, right. That being the case, folks, thanks once again, and we'll catch you later. See ya. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 Years of VTM, at our email info at 25yearsvtm.com, on Facebook at slash 25yearsvtm or on our website, www.25yearsvtm.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade.